I don't know if you caught the collect, but it said, may this world be so peacefully ordered. And I almost kind of laughed out loud because I thought, peacefully ordered? Lord, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> what, could be, <laughs> what is peacefully ordered about this world? I, I intended to preach today on faithfulness in the face of suffering because when I first read that 2 Corinthians passage, immediately that's where my mind went. But the Lord had different ideas for me. So that's not the way we'll go. Um, I believe Paul's probably talking about faithfulness to the gospel, by the way, when he says these light and momentary troubles. Uh, so just take that. Not, that's not part of the sermon, so don't start your watch yet. Now you can start your watch. We, um, we just celebrated the, the wedding of our youngest daughter, Samantha, and, but even in the midst of all the joy that the week was, and I realize that I'm kind of having post-wedding melancholiness. I'll just confess that up front. I'll be vulnerable about that. But there's, there's also tainted with it um, pain and suffering and loss and orderly, orderly world. Are you, are you kidding, Lord? Really? I found out that we lost Walter Crosby on Saturday, even as we were celebrating Samantha's wedding. Um, we've got elderly people in our families who are beginning to have health issues and there are pains and sufferings and difficulties and all the things that we were dealing with before the wedding are still being dealt with after the wedding. At the end of our service, we say the Kenyan acclamation. I don't know if you know that's where it comes from. All of our problems, we send to the cross of Christ. All of our difficulties, we send to the cross of Christ. And all the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ. If you're new to servants, or if you're watching online, that's, that's something that we gathered from the, our Kenyan brothers and sisters. When we were using the Kenyan liturgy, when we came under Kenya, we adopted that. And that was just one of those treasures that we couldn't let go of. It was just one of those things that we said, no, no, this is ours. And, and it's so helpful, right? Because there are problems and there are difficulties that we face. And that you are facing or your family's facing right now. And we have to be reminded to take them to the cross, to take them to the Lord. We also have to be reminded that it is the devil, the, the enemy of God, who is at work to tempt us constantly away from God and to not trust his faithfulness. You see, the reality is that we have always that tempter, that serpent, as he's identified in Genesis 3, who is there to, to try to tempt us, to, to test God, to, to doubt God, to, to bring about our own questioning in our own minds. And I think it's so appropriate that right after Trinity Sunday, we've, we've had Pentecost, we've had the Ascension Sunday, we've had Trinity Sunday, that, that the, the lectionary brings us back to Genesis, back, back to the roots of our faith, back to the beginning and what the Lord was doing in Genesis I'm reading a book for my doctoral class by a guy named Dr. Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist, a Christian psychiatrist, and he talks, he wrote a book called The Soul of Shame, and I, I commend it to you. I think it's a, a worthy work, The Soul of Shame, and, and Thompson brings out the, the fact that you really have to understand Genesis 3, you have to understand Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, that, that before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed. There was no shame in them. They, they stood vulnerable before God and they had no reason to be ashamed. 
They had nothing to fear. They were completely vulnerable to God and it was, they were at peace. Now this is not the same as Naked and Afraid, which is a show on, I think, Discovery Channel somewhere or so, which is a terrible show where they take two random people and they put them in the woods alone naked and they'd never met each other and they have to figure out how to survive and it's terrible. But, but this is naked and unafraid. This is the complete opposite of that and that's where Adam and Eve begin. But in the midst of that, shame begins to enter into the process. And it does so by this tempter, by Satan. Now, we don't learn about the serpent being the devil until the New Testament. In Romans chapter 16, you will, you know, it talks about crushing Satan's head, which is clearly a reference back to Genesis 3. And then in Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 20, we have references to, to the devil being the ancient serpent. And we know that that's a reference back to Genesis chapter 3. It is this most subtle, most crafty of creations. Not equal with God, not eternal like God, but a creation who has rebelled against God, who now serves as the one who tempts us from trusting God. And Eve is there. Adam is there as well, but he is completely silent. Boy, there are times, guys, where we just completely advocate our role, don't we? Eve is the one who engages with the serpent. She's talking to him and he begins to, to bring doubt and confusion into her mind by the way he goes about describing it. He asks a question, does God really say that you're not able to eat of any of the trees of the, the, the garden? And Eve begins to respond to that, but she does so in a way that portrays what the, what the temptation is. Because we see, if you look closely, and it's kind of subtle, but she changes what God says in three ways. First of all, God says you may freely eat of every tree of the, of the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She takes out the freely and just says we may eat of the trees. So she minimizes the blessing of God. Secondly, she adds a, a further prohibition. We may not touch the fruit. God never said you couldn't touch the fruit. God just said you weren't to eat of the fruit. Perhaps that, that, that additional prohibition of, of touching the fruit uh, is something that, that is, is helpful for us to understand that sometimes it, it, it betrays the fact that we're, we're already tempted by it, by the fact that, so we're not even gonna touch it because if we touch it, we're afraid we're gonna wanna eat it. And then thirdly, she minimizes death. She said, instead of saying, God says, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. Eve responds back to the serpent, if lest you die. And it's in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a lessening of the effect. It's a, it's a minimizing even of the effect of death. And of course, we know now, looking back from the New Testament perspective in, in light of Christ, we know that what 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 God is talking about is spiritual death in the life of the man and the woman, but she doesn't see it. But, but at that moment, Eve and Adam, though he's silent, become tempted to doubt God and to begin to allow shame to take root, Dr. Thompson says, in their lives. All of a sudden, they begin to wonder if, in fact, they're good enough if maybe they've gotten a raw deal, maybe there's more. 
which is the whole reason why this idea that you can have the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. It's this temptation because there's some sense in which they've begun to, to buy into the premise that they're less than what they should be, that they're not enough, which obviously is what shame is all about. It's not, shame is not simply just about what we do wrong, but it's simply it's, it's about us feeling that we are wrong, that we're not enough, that we're insufficient, that we are failures, that we're not good. Which is a complete retelling of the story of creation, which says that we are good, that God made us good, that when he had finished with the the crowning achievement of making humanity, he called it very good. And yet in our temptation, we begin to feel as if maybe we aren't good. And so Eve and Adam pick a pomegranate over God's relationship. They, they reach for something else that they think will fulfill them, that will make them whole, that will give them knowledge, that will make them divine, that, that will, will give them strength and power because they feel as if they're inferior and so they reach for something that they think will make them better. And they choose it over God. And sin enters the world. And so the curse begins. So many times I've read this passage, but until I was reading this book by Dr. Thompson, I didn't realize, I never thought about the question. It's like, why does Adam and Eve not go back to God and ask God to clarify? Why do they continue in their own doubt, questioning God rather than speaking to God about their doubts? Good question, Alex. Why do you do that all the time? Why do I question God rather than bringing my questions to God? Why do I think it's about me trying to better myself, make myself good enough, deal with this shame I feel that somehow I'm not enough on my own rather than bringing to the Lord? Why do I pick the fruit over a relationship with God? Great question. Adam and Eve begin by taking the fruit and immediately there is a sense of vulnerability. It's described in the, in the narrative here in Genesis 3. You know what happens, right? They, they hide themselves. They, they, first of all, they cover themselves. They want to cover their nakedness because they feel vulnerable. So they use fig leaves. Bad choice, but, you know, they'll, they'll work on that later on. But they, they, they cover themselves from their nakedness, and then they hide themselves from God. And that is the truth of what happens in our lives. When we feel vulnerable, we hide. We hide from each other. We hide from ourselves. It's much easier to talk about football than to talk about what's going on with Alex. We hide from relationships. We hide from God. But here's the good news in the midst of the story. You know this in this passage and you know it so well, but, but I, I hope that this, this morning that, that the Lord will begin to show us something else. In the midst of our vulnerability and our hiding and our shame and true guilt for the things that they had done, God comes looking for them. If you want to know where the gospel is, is seed planted in Genesis 3, it's right here. 
God comes looking for Adam and Eve. Now, he knows where they are. He knows where they're hiding. I mean, it's not like he's God, right? He knows. But he comes asking them questions. And what are questions indicative of? They're, question, they're, they're relational. Where are you? What, what are you doing? Not, you know, not, not the question that your parents often ask you. What were you thinking, right? You know, that's always the terrible question. What were, I wasn't thinking. That's why, that's why I jumped off the roof or whatever you did, right? It's, but where are you? He begins to seek them out. He begins to, to seek to have dialogue with them, to, to understand where they are and to call them. He comes looking for them. God comes looking for us. You see, the solution to that sense of being vulnerable and, and, and feeling guilt and because of our, our guilt, shame that, that we, have, we are just not good enough. And, this, and the, the reaction to that, the, the, the solution for that is to run to God rather than to hide away from him, to hide in our minds and in our intellect, to hide our emotions to think somehow that we're superior to other people and to try to compensate. It's the way that shame works in all sorts of ways in our lives that I'm just learning as I'm going through this book, I realize that, that the solution is to come to God in our vulnerability and to, to come before him, which is exactly what Psalm 130 tells us. So it's so appropriate that David kind of served up Psalm 30 to us this morning because Psalm 30 is all about our sin. It's all about crying out to the Lord from the depths, crying for his mercy when we feel so vulnerable and guilty and shameful. There's some this morning that are, you feel as if you've not been a good spouse, you've not been a good parent, you've not been a good friend, you've not been a good worker, You've not been a provider. You've, you've squandered the, the, what you could have done with your life and that what it ends up being that was less than what you thought it would be when you were 20-something and thought you were going to conquer the world. And that all is shame and guilt-inducing and it brings us to a place of vulnerability and causes us to want to run and hide. And God says, no, come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary, and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Psalm 30 says, I cry out to God from the depths. I cry out for mercy. I like the translation better. If you were to keep a record of wrongs, O Lord, this, we have a slightly different version in our, our hymnal today, but, but it's that idea, Lord, if you were to keep a record of wrongs, who could stand before you? No one. The sin of my life is so great. The failures of my life are so great. But I'm not going to hide from you, Lord. I'm going to run to you. And I'm going to ask for your forgiveness. But notice the psalmist doesn't simply ask for forgiveness, but the, he waits on the Lord. He waits on relationship with the Lord. The Lord doesn't simply want to forgive you. Like, well, okay, don't do it again, but you're forgiven. The Lord wants to love you and be in relationship with you and let you know that you don't have to live a life based upon performance because he loves you no matter what. 
no matter how much you fail. He loves you and he wants you to be with him. And in him, the psalmist concludes, there is plenteous forgiveness. There is plenteous redemption. Because of his steadfast love, because of his covenant love, the psalmist says, there is plenteous redemption. There's, you don't have to worry about running out of it. But you have to come to him. You have to run to him and not away from him. Our community, our church family, should be a place where we can be vulnerable and confess the things that we're ashamed of and find grace and mercy. Because in the process of bringing those things to others that we trust, God begins to bring a healing and to set us free from those things. Things that are shameful that are confessed are no longer shameful. They're no longer secrets hidden that that plague us and pull us down and that the enemy, the serpent, the, the devil can use to rob us of relationship with God. If this isn't a place where you can be vulnerable and confess those things that are shameful or you're ashamed of, then we're not doing our job. Because God is the God who calls us to be a place of vulnerability. And he says that everyone who calls upon his name will be saved, will be rescued from those things, will be rescued from the curse that is imposed upon humanity in Genesis 3. Now, I'm not trying to tell the whole story of Genesis 3. You know what happens. The curses come, and we see the result of it, the brokenness of our world. When, when you go, I can't believe that's going on, that's the result of, of the, the curse of, the, of sin. That's, that's the result of sin, our, our choosing the fruit over a relationship with God. But there is a path back because though Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, God goes to join them east of Eden in the person of Jesus Christ. And God, who is in perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which Michael talked to you about last week, God empties himself and comes into our broken world and let's face it, on the cross he was naked. I mean, his own family is ashamed of him in the gospel reading today, right? There, Jesus is out of his mind and we need to take him away, right? The, the religious leaders, this guy is bonkers. He's, he's speaking as the devil. Jesus says, no, no, I'm the one who has the authority to, to bind the strong man. And even though he's trying to tempt you to be ashamed of me and to try to suppress me somehow, I'm here to tell you that I'm the one who will bind Satan and I will rob him of everything he has. And that's what Jesus did at the cross and the resurrection. Amen? Are you with me? The cross, Hebrews says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, forsaking, it, forsaking its shame because of what he knew was beyond the cross. The joy of bringing us back into relationships with him. He became naked and vulnerable and shameful 
and fearful and destitute. And he faced, faced what looked like defeat and death that he might win us back to God. That he might set us free from guilt and shame. That we might have a place to rest our vulnerability until one day when we are reunited with God and all of that will be dealt with. But he does leave us this promise that in him, our vulnerability and our guilt and our shame can find peace and can find rest. And I love it. He even, he even redeems the, you know, in Eve, it says that she took the fruit and she ate it. And she gave it to her husband and he did the same. And what does Jesus say at the Last Supper? He says, take and eat. He, he even redeems those words. Take and eat. Take and eat. Receive from me what you need. You are good enough. You are beloved. You don't have to live a life of performance and doubt and shame. You can live as my beloved child whom I loved enough to come looking for. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.